I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team. To the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, Elise Jordan joins me for our election special of Skimmed from the Couch, where we are taking a look at careers in politics. As a veteran of the George W. Bush White House, she's worked as a speechwriter and an advisor to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. She was also a communications director for the National Security Council. She's now a political analyst for MSNBC and NBC News. Elise, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. You know, there's nothing to talk about regarding politics, so it will be a very boring show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So I'm thrilled to have you here. We'll start off the way we do all of these, which is time for you to skim your resume. You know, I look back and I can't believe sometimes how old I've gotten so quickly. And (laughs) going back to, you know, entering the workforce officially right after college around 2004. And I had always been interested in journalism. I had at my high school, I started my high school newspaper and then I went to Yale and I worked at the Yale Daily News and I worked summers at a small town Mississippi newspaper and as a researcher on the author Steve Brill's book about the aftermath of 9-11. So I knew I wanted to do something with journalism and preferably policy. And so then when I graduated, my former editor at the Yale Daily News had gotten a job in the White House Office of Speech Writing and he recommended me for his position as he rapidly ascended. And I had luckily met President Bush a few times with my good friend, Barbara Bush, his daughter, and he encouraged me to join the administration. And so it just kind of worked out in a weird way for a girl from small town Mississippi who really, whenever I had equated career success, the rich people that were in my orbit were doctors or lawyers. and. I didn't have any idea about all of the great opportunities that were out there that aren't just traditional careers. And so going to Yale was really eye-opening for me. What is something, you know, you've obviously, you've been a Googleable person for a while now. So what is something that people don't know about you? That's a good question. I feel like with Google, so much weird information's out there. Sometimes I get, I'll get someone on Twitter and be like, wow, I can't believe everything you've accomplished and you're only 28. And I'm like, praise the Lord for that person. Only, you know, shave my age by a decade. But no, I was not a child prodigy who went to college when I was, you know, 14. I guess probably that I grew up in a small town in Mississippi. We raised horses. We went every weekend out to our farm. It was just a very different life. I was the first kid in my school to ever go to leave and to go to an Ivy League. I would say Mississippi culturally was as different and as far in leaving and going to the Northeast as if I had been uh, you know, from Pakistan or somewhere very exotic and far flung. Where in Mississippi did you grow up? It's a small town, Holly Springs, and actually Shepard Smith 
is from Holly Springs. It's an interesting, you know, small town of about 7,000 people. And when he goes down there, he's like uh, Eli Manning, the football superstar, just, you know, Shepard Smith, big deal. So. <laughs> when you were growing up, like as, as you're talking about, you know, you the life that you have today and, and what the career you, you created was not necessarily something that, you know, you saw a lot of growing up. What did you think you were going to be? I always wanted to be a writer in some form. And I was always a super big reader. And so reading has just been something that's been so important to me ever since I was able to actually read, you know, reading fine literature, like the Babysitter's Club obsessively. I can talk to you about that for a long time. (laughs) Just fun fact, I will interrupt and say, I at one point volunteered on an online chat when I was 12 to be the expert on the Babysitter's Club. The Babysitter's Club was a great basis for teaching entrepreneurship. Look at you, look at where you ended up, work ethic. So I just really didn't know. And I almost feel like, I guess we got dial-up internet probably when I was... 15 or 16. So that like the internet like opened up a whole new world of possibility just in kind of the information at hand and, you know, more than just a library that you could kind of turn to as a resource. And it's crazy looking back just how different things were, I guess. So you mentioned you made a friend at Yale named Barbara. Just so happened Barbara's dad had a big job. I want to kind of better understand how you got your foot in the door. There's obviously, you know, going to a school like Yale, I imagine it opened up a network and it opened up a lot of doors for you. But how did you actually like get your foot in the door to, to get to the White House? So I, my resume ended up being circulated through presidential personnel and any entry-level job that I could be considered for, that I was a possible fit, if anyone was interested, they would then call me up and have an interview and you get vetted by the political office. And so I interviewed for a job at the Department of Education. I interviewed for an assistant job at Department of Homeland Security. I interviewed for the job in the speech writing office and the speech writing office I got an offer from and uh, I wanted it. So it just kind of worked out. But the moral of the story is you just never know how life can be strange and who can help you out and who you're going to meet. I never thought, you know, coming from my background that I would end up working at the White House right after college I guess my career advice would be just to be open-minded and to seize opportunities as they come because you're not taking advantage of the system. You need to make the system work for you. And I think that women need to be proactive about that and to recognize and to take opportunities as they come about. One of the things that all of us learn quickly in our careers is to make it, you've got to figure out how to manage up. How do you manage up to your boss? Now, most people's bosses are not Condoleezza Rice and President Bush. So I want to understand what was it like to learn how to manage up in the White House? Well, I think I would point out that it was very layered that, you know, my contact with, especially in the White House, with President Bush at a working level was pretty minimal, but I would be directly supporting his chief speechwriters who were dealing with 
presidential addresses every single day and presidential edits, which President Bush had a very heavy hand in and would line edit and go through all of his speeches and was very personally invested in his speeches and the speech writing process too. But I entered at a strange time too. It was the height of the 2004 election. So it, uh, it was a tight race with John Kerry and there was the possibility that President Bush wouldn't get reelected and it, was just be, it would just be a two month job, but I felt that it was worth it no matter what, uh, because I believed in the administration and I wanted to be a part of it. In a normal White House, there are so many checks and balances. There are within a speech writing office, for example, fact checking, research, which I was a part of. I was also an assistant to the deputy speech writer and designed so that there are no mistakes and the finished product is flawless. And every single stat is vetted throughout government, through any figures about the money, go through, goes through the Office of uh, Management and Budget. So you end up working with so many different branches and facets of government by being at the White House. And it's important to build relationships where you could get the information you needed quickly. People are very responsive because you are the White House, but it really taught me a lot about learning how to interact with so many different players all around the United States government. Obviously, like, you know, as a speechwriter and as a comms director, you, you've made a career about being an expert at communication. What is your advice on how to, how to become a strong communicator at work? You know, I'm so shy for so long, which probably seems strange to say, but I remember being at a meeting in the situation room and I think it was on, you know, Pakistan comms in a situation that had come up. And I was the one who had actually prepped the presentation, but I was sitting at the back of the room and I was just so nervous. It was so hard for me to find my voice and to speak. And weirdly doing television commentary actually helped me so much with public speaking. But I think it's just so much about women needing to put themselves out there and not hesitating to speak. And you look at the contrast just instinctively in women versus men when it comes to public speaking dynamics. You just look at how women respond differently to men yelling over each other. And in a workplace, sometimes women aren't rewarded for necessarily having more decorum, but it's just figuring out how to use the situation to your advantage. And one of my good friends, Jennifer Palmieri, she's written a book that deals a lot about this. And I would encourage every woman who is interested in communicating more strongly at work to check out her work. But she talks about the need to promote other women and so that women aren't silenced and how other women can hold up other women at the table too. I cannot tell you how many women we have had on this show who have described themselves as like, well, I'm actually pretty shy, I'm actually pretty introverted. And yet you're on this show because of your remarkable career successes as, as are many other women. But how do you literally force yourself in the moment to come out of yourself 
so that you do get in front of the right people, so that you do communicate effectively and ultimately are able to rise in the workplace. And so when you look back at like who you were, you know, as somebody, you know, very young in their career, what are the tools that you use to do that, to overcome the the shyness? You know, at the time, you know, I had a hang up over my accent. I loved my Southern accent and it just is not going to go away. Quite frankly, it's not going away. It's just who I am. And, you know, when I left and went to college at Yale, it was definitely heavier, but I was, you know, it would be a source of commentary sometimes, not in probably such a nice way. And so I was, I had a hang up over that, which like what to have a hang up over. It's like not that big of a deal, but I think at the same time, you know, I just kept like charging forward and not letting it bother me because this is who I am at the end of the day. And I'm not going to be able to ever fake it and pretend to be someone else. And I kind of think it's just so important to embrace who you are, to appreciate who you are, to know your background. When you're getting started out, just because you're always going to feel so inadequate and like you're cheating and like you don't belong and like you're a fraud and just the courage to keep going forward every day and to be, you know, to put yourself forward and know that you might be putting yourself out to ridicule. It's much like the current internet environment, you know, when women put themselves out there too and the kind of, you know, abuse that you get if you're a public figure and you're a woman. But I think that that's probably somewhat similar to a lot of the insecurity that plenty of women feel at the beginning of their careers. You had to manage comms in very, very high stakes foreign policy situations that had very, very real human costs. How did you balance the need to do your job with moments that truly take an emotional toll? I frankly think it's good for policymakers to feel the emotional toll and to understand the emotional toll and to understand the stakes so that they aren't just communicating standard talking points devoid of the humanity of what they're talking about. So I personally always think it's good for the emotion to be there and for policymakers to understand the grave consequences of their words and of what they put forward and of, you know, the apologies that are put forward when they're, say, God forbid, a civilian casualty in a place of war. I think that honesty is paramount if we are going to succeed in our foreign relations. And too often policymakers become immune to the emotional core of it. And I think that that's actually, uh, it can lead to terrible consequences for the United States and how we are perceived and we behave in our role in the world. What was the hardest day for you in the White House? Around the time of Hurricane Katrina, that was really the toughest stint. The reports are coming in, it's over a holiday weekend, Labor Day. The situation is clearly becoming pretty bad and I'm, part of a team that's assembling 
information and stories and trying to write the eventual speech that the president would give talking about the event. And it was just really heartbreaking to watch how it unfolded. I would really contrast President Bush's response and his humility and immediately taking responsibility for the government's shortcomings to other leaders. I think it's very important to step up and to admit when things haven't been going as well and so that you can correct course. But it was very hard to realize that so much human suffering was happening and seeing how the federal government, it just took a, took a minute to catch up to the dire happenings on the ground. We've talked a lot about burnout on the show and how to really just like take care of yourself as an individual. You know, obviously most people are not working in jobs that necessarily have the same high stakes as being in the White House, no matter what the administration is or who's in the White House. What is your advice around how to protect yourself when work feels and is all consuming at all times? I think number one, exercise and how you eat and how you physically take care of yourself. I can't advocate strongly enough that if you're going to be able to work at a high level you and perform at a high level, that you can't just, you know, let yourself go on some level just because of the way I know I can't perform when I'm just eating bugles and I'm trying to survive on very little sleep. You have to do everything you can to make that little amount of personal time count. At least that's for me as someone who really loves to sleep and <laughs> knows how my brain just shuts off. Also, I think that it's really important to have your separate life, your separate interests, your separate loves, your separate passions. Mine are breeding, animals. Obviously, I love politics, but I think that political jobs can be so all-consuming that you do need to step away. In Washington, it can particularly be hard because everyone works in politics. Um, so I think that anytime you can step away, and there's just too much emphasis in American culture overall that if you aren't working 24-7, if you aren't available 24-7, that you are somehow a, quote, bad employee. And I think that any way you can fight back against that by being a good present employee at the times when you're supposed to be at work and then having your own full life, I think that that's how you ultimately become better at your job and at your profession. You lived in Afghanistan for some of your time working on the National Security Council. Talk to me about what that experience was like and how that ended up impacting you both professionally, but also personally. I also was in Iraq for different chunks of time helping with our press operation when there was an Iraqi election and helping get reporters around the country. And then I spent more time in Afghanistan and it was really incredibly defining and influential just in how I see the world, how I see how the U.S. government operates outside of Washington, and really just, you know, Americans going out into the world and what our impact is for better and for worse. And 
those are the kind of jobs that you really, you are working 24 seven and it is high burnout and you're eating with your colleagues, you're sleeping in very close quarters, you, there's nothing to do because of security really. So you do end up spending most of your time working, but it's an incredible experience to see how passionate so many different people are at their jobs and at, you know, the mission and how, uh, you know, leadership at that kind of level, observing the head of ISAF, the commanding general, and how you run an organization that is so far flung and with life or death consequences really was the experience of a lifetime. Administrations obviously come to an end. And after the Bush administration came to an end, you had to consider new job opportunities. How do you think about those next steps? What happens when you don't have any idea what it is you want to do next? Put us in your mindset. Like where, where were you mentally? Like, did you know what you wanted to do next? And how did you think through opportunities? So after the NSC experience and then my time in Afghanistan, I wanted to transition to journalism and to telling the story of what was happening rather than being behind the scenes. And I started sending off pitches to do freelance work. Uh, it was a really big hustle. Uh, I didn't realize then, back then, even the job of freelance journalist was still viable. Now, today, it really, uh, it really just isn't because of all the changes within journalism. So I really just kind of started putting myself out there in any work that I could get, reporting, doing stories, writing columns. So I went back to Afghanistan. Marie Claire accepted a pitch for a feature story on female Marines uh, in Southern Afghanistan. And so I told that story, got to write that story. And then I started writing a column for National Review and different places here and there. And then the work picked up to the point that I started to get asked to go on TV and do commentary. And that became eventually now my one of my main gigs. But I think being open-minded and understanding that it can be feast or famine as you're getting started off on a new career path that is creative too, somewhat, you know, writing and commentary. And it's not, you know, a set nine to five job and just being up for the hustle and realizing that you're not going to meet immediate success and you've just got to keep every day putting one foot in front of the other if you want to succeed in the game. When somebody comes to you and they say, like, Elise, like, I've been doing this job, whatever that's, this job is, for four years. I know it's time to move on. I just don't know what to do next. How do you advise them how to think through that? I always recommend that you look at what unique experience you've picked up from your current gig and then how that would be value added in what your dream new gig would be. And so how you can transition. Since I've left the administration, I also worked at a hedge fund for a bit, helping uh, the hedge fund manager with his personal philanthropy and political donating and investor relations. And that was definitely a departure, but it gave me security and taught me a lot about a world that I didn't understand that much. 
And so it was such a value added. I think being open-minded to an experience that isn't necessarily your quote, perfect career, but that adds a lot of value and that you learn a lot and grow a lot because that's the most important part. You just don't want to be at that job for four years and be bored out of your mind and feel stuck and you're not growing at all. What is your top advice that you would give to your 21-year-old self today now that you've had the experiences that you've had? I would say to really hustle and to be open-minded when you do have an opportunity. I did research for a lot of people as side gigs and to just learn how you can excel for one individual and to try to understand and get what you can from their knowledge base and from their success, even though it might not be your permanent job, but just you don't underestimate the importance of the hustle. And I really wanted to go into journalism so badly right after college, but the only jobs that I had been offered were unpaid internships and I actually needed a paycheck. And so the government path was veering, but was obviously incredibly exciting and mind-blowing. But you just have to be open to finding your way on the path, even if it's not exactly what you thought it would be. You bring up a good point about the the side hustles. There's a lot of more opportunities as side hustles that are non-paying than paying. And when you're just getting started out, when you're just starting out, you know, you're being open to everything and you're you're trying to just like take opportunities as they come up and an opportunity comes up that is not paying and it is meant to be done in, on the side. Do you advise somebody to take it or no? I think you really have to evaluate what the opportunity is because not getting paid can sometimes just be so exploitative that I just, I don't really believe in it. I think you'd be better taking that waitressing job, which I did and which taught me just as much as researching Civil War history for uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, just because you get to see what your options are in the world outside of a given path. And so I really think that any work that helps you along the way and gives you insight into what it is you actually want to end up doing can be just as valuable as that prestige internship that doesn't pay. And at the same time, you're, you're making your rent, which is always a value added. You also, after the administration, worked on a presidential campaign for Rand Paul in 2016. A lot of our listeners, especially in today's climate on both sides of the aisle, want to get involved in politics, not sure how. What is your advice around getting political experience and how to approach getting that exposure? Politics were at such an interesting inflection point because it is so accessible for anyone to get involved at the local level. And I think that there's so much that women who want to get involved in politics there's so much opportunity just to volunteer and to start contributing in some way, shape, or form that I just didn't realize before I was actually in politics. And so you can pursue it as a concerned citizen, as more of a hobbyist who is, you know, a way to pursue your political passion, 
or you can use it as a career, but you can use the volunteer opportunities and at the local level to get involved and to get in the game. So I love that almost like writing, there's a really low barrier to entry and you can play a part in the political process just by putting yourself out there. Are you ready for our lightning round? Okay, sure. Morning person or night owl? Morning. What show or movie is the best representation of what your job was like in the White House? Probably the political satires, you know, along the lines of, I don't know if you've seen the movie War Machine, but it was based on my late husband's book. And I thought that was a really good satirical depiction of what policymaking and war on the ground in all of his sadness, too, is like. So War Machine starring Brad Pitt. You had me at Brad Pitt. Uh, (laughs) What is the worst professional mistake you've made? Oh, how many? I've got to just, I've just got to think. Anything I've ever gotten wrong and I've had to have a correction. Is there one that really sticks out? Well, I wrote, I mean, it wasn't really that bad, but it still, it just bothers me because the story got in so much traffic about Melania's plagiarized speech at the 2016 convention. And I actually understated the amount of times that uh, Michelle Obama was plagiarized. So we had to have a correction upping the amount at the bottom of the story. And it just bothers me because it got a lot of traffic. And I hate that the beauty of it had to be ruined by my dumb mistake of not counting all of the instances correctly. Last time you negotiated for yourself? Oh, well, it's happening soon when I'm up for a contract with MSNBC and NBC. You know, it's a yearly process. And, you know, if you get invited for a speech, if you get asked to do a one-off task, you're always having to advocate for your value and it can be very uncomfortable. And one time I was approached about a short-term job that was fascinating and really would have been awesome. And it was kind of the thing you would want to do for free. But I was around a peer mentor, male, and he was like, why are you offering them that amount? You should triple it. And so I did, and sure, they accepted it. And it just was kind of a lesson that you don't want to be too extreme and greedy. But at the same time, as Mika Brzezinski says, know your value. Yep, I agree. Okay. Well, Elise, thank you so much for joining us on the couch today. Congratulations on upcoming baby. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.